dear readers, you are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We would like to acknowledge that we are in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. In this episode, we will discuss The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I'm Erica, and in normal times, I work at the Fort Garry Library. And across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, and in normal times, I work at the Louis Riel Library. But now, across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Kirsten, and normally you'd find me at the Harvey Smith Library. And across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Dennis, and I normally work in the Idea Mill by Thunder, but today I am at home as well. <laughs> A good book can carry me away from an We couldn't do this without you. We love receiving your questions and comments because they add so much to our discussions. Let us know how you feel about the books we're reading by email at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca or leaving a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and other fine podcasting services. Get involved on social media. This month, we asked our Facebook group to choose our next book for us, so stay tuned to find out what it is at the end of the episode, after our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. As all branches of WPL are still closed, we are focusing on books that are easily available on our ebook and audiobook service Overdrive. And once again, we're recording at a distance from one another. So I'm going to stop talking for a moment and just enjoy seeing my podcast pals talk. Kirsten is going to give a brief author bio, followed by Trevor, who is going to come with all the spoilers in the form of a synopsis. Take it away, Kirsten and Trevor. Thanks. Um, I don't know how brief my author bio is going to be because Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle really was a fascinating person. Born in 1859, he was obviously a British writer and medical doctor. His life as a doctor was super fascinating. He worked as a ship's doctor for a while and was surgeon on a number of explorations and uh, on a Greenland whaler super cool. He was a staunch supporter of compulsory vaccinations and wrote several articles and letters to the editor denouncing the views of, of anti-vaxxers. And um, I was able to find some of those. So um, I will add one of those letters to the editors in the show notes, just sort of interesting considering our times right now. He had a really acute sense of, of justice, of right and wrong. And throughout his life, he came to the defense of a number of folks who he felt had been falsely accused and wrongly convicted. He was also quite a sportsman, football, cricket, amateur boxer, golfer. He participated in the English Amateur Billiards Championships in 1913. And in 1887, so still as a fairly young man, he was initiated as a Freemason. He was very, very interested in mysticism and the paranormal, and he attended a series of psychic investigations, including seances, experiments in telepathy, and uh, sittings with uh, with mediums and such. He was actually friends with Houdini, uh, but he had a falling out with um, Henry Houdini because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle refused to believe that Houdini's illusions were just tricks. So Houdini kept saying to him that, no, these are tricks. And he just wouldn't believe it. He thought he had, that Houdini had supernatural powers. So they couldn't remain friends after that fight. Conan Doyle believed in life after death and spiritual communication and was a member of the Ghost Club. And of course, throughout all this, he was a prolific writer. He wrote serials in the Strand, of which the Sherlock Holmes series was one. He was a playwright. Um, he wrote nonfiction. But one last thing I really wanted to tell you about in the bio is he came to Winnipeg in 1923. And there's a fascinating recounting of this visit on the Manitoba Historical Society website. And I will include that in the show notes as well. So he visited Winnipeg for several days in the 1920s in an earnest attempt to convert its inhabitants to the cause of spiritualism. 
So he and his wife met up with a number of Winnipeggers who also believed in life after death. It's really a fascinating account, so you must read it. But the main reason that they were there was his lecture, which was Proofs of Immortality, which they uh, did as a speech to 800 people packed into the Walker Theatre. So that is the fascinating um, biography of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Over to you, Trevor. Wow. And here I was being worried that my uh, synopsis was going to be on the long side. So I, I don't feel so bad now before I read it. No worries. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with all that spiritual talk, we, I, I feel like what you were going to say, uh, Kirsten, and ladies and gentlemen, uh, join us through the Ouija, Ouija board, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a little disappointed now that it's just going to be the four of us. But, oh, just you, know, you wait. Just uh, you we'll, wait. Let's push on. So here we go. Here is my summary of The Hound of the Baskervilles. It's the 1880s. Sir Henry Baskerville is just an unassuming farmer living in Canada when he gets the news that he's inherited his ancestral home, Baskerville Hall, back in England on the edge of the dangerous and dreary moor named Grimpen Mire. I just love that name, Grimpen Mire. <laughs> but wait, there's a catch. The inheritance comes with a family curse, which puts the Baskerville line in the high-risk category of being stalked by a demonic, ghostly hound. It turns, <laughs> it turns out that the former master of Baskerville Hall, Sir Charles, died of fright outside his home just three months prior, with evidence of paw prints near his body and an expression of horror upon his face. <laughs> just before Sir Henry's arrival in London to claim his inheritance and to return Baskerville Hall to its former glory, Dr. Mortimer, a friend and neighbor of the late Sir Charles Baskerville, pays a visit to the world's most famous consulting detective, Sherlock Holmes, to ask for his assistance in this curious matter. Holmes is intrigued, but due to a prior commitment, cannot make the journey to Baskerville Hall himself to investigate. So it falls to Dr. Watson, Holmes' trusted friend, roommate, and chronicler, to travel with Sir Henry and Dr. Mortimer to Dartmoor in the West Country to act as Holmes' surrogate. Upon arrival, Watson meets an odd assortment of local weirdos, including butterfly enthusiast Jack Stapleton and his sister Beryl, the Barrymores, who are the butler and the house matron of Baskerville Hall, who have secrets of their own, and Franklin, the local curmudgeon who likes to spy on his neighbors with a telescope and sue anyone for anything just for the sport of it. Secrets are discovered, plots thicken, the moor gurgles, and the hound howls. What's the meaning behind all this? Turns out it's quite elementary. Oh my gosh. That was amazing. Fantastic. Nicely done. <laughs> no need to read the book. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> no, lo I love, love, it. love. It'll probably come out in this podcast. I love Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yes, I was kind of, I was kind of fanboying there a little bit. So I do apologize. I'll <laughs> try to it. rein it in. I'll try to be objective. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. No worries. Under the Bastard Bills. Yeah, well, tell us more about that, because my first question was going to be, anyone have any thoughts to start us off? Has anyone read the book before? No, I um, I hadn't read any Sherlock Holmes at all, and I've barely been watched any of the shows on TV or movies, so I just kind of dove in, and I was really surprised how much I enjoyed it, and yeah, how engaging it was, and funny, and, um, you know, if a little problematic here and there but uh yeah and it was really great i've read a few of the sherlock holmes stories before but never uh the hound of the baskerville so this was my first time with that i'm not as big a fan as trevor or kirsten apparently i find he drags out the story a little bit probably because it was serialized in a magazine originally so he had to like fill space and, and drag it out for a certain number of issues but i like a more streamlined kind of thing but well, the story itself was interesting. I liked how short it was still. <laughs> well, I, I think, yeah, I think I, my my uh, love of Sherlock Holmes began about when I was in grade four. For Christmas, I got this huge box. In my memory, it was like a, a steamer trunk, but I think it was just like a cardboard box full of these things called <laughs> illustrated children's classics. I don't know if you guys ever had oh, them. Yeah. They're like little, like almost square size paperbacks where... Uh, and they were summaries or digested, digested versions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Delicious. <laughs> I'm not sure who digested them. <laughs> a short, short, a, a ton of, yeah, a ton of classics, you know, Tale of Two Cities, uh, Captain's Courageous, uh, Great Expectations, all those. And then there was one called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, where they had, you know, three or four of the short stories in there. And that was the first time I read them and totally just 
fell in love with the, the characters and the stories. So I immediately jumped to the actual stories. There's the 56 short stories and the four novels that were written. And that's sort of considered canon uh, for the Sherlock fans. And so I, uh, I I read through all of those. And right around the same time as reading those on PBS, there was a, a series produced by the BBC, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Jeremy Brett. And so it was always on a certain night, like a Sunday night. And it was like required viewing because it was before, you know, VCRs were common. Yeah. So like my, my dad and my brother and I would always sit down after supper, hour long episodes. And because the short stories are a perfect length to do a, a decent job of them in, you know, 55 minutes or something. So we'd watch those. And then just when I was in grade six, this movie came out called Young Sherlock Holmes. And my, one day my dad took uh, my brother and I to it. And my dad had this habit of going to see movies ahead of time if he thought they'd be questionable uh, <laughs> and kind of vet them. And I just I love the idea of my dad going to see movie, things like, you know, uh, aliens or, or or like stuff he totally wasn't into, but just to see if it was scary or sweary or whatever. But he didn't do this for young Sherlock Holmes. And the opening scene, I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, is quite violent. And so I just, I'm returning to my dad in the theater. And my brother's three years younger than me. And just said, oh, dad, please, please let us stay. Like, <laughs> like, like, and, and, he, and I think he was like, you could see like the pleading in my eyes. And, and he's like, okay. Cause I think he was like almost half out of his seat, you know, <laughs> going back to demand the money, his money back. And then, uh, yeah. So, uh, that's sort of, and then in junior high, I kind of, you know, I've read them all and then I kind of branched off into the homages and everything, but I still come back to the original. 56, 56 and four, as us Sherlockians like to call them. Wow. So yeah, that's, I'm going I'm to I'm just stop there for a moment. That's amazing. So, so you've read Hound of the Baskervilles before? I have. And an interesting thing about that Hound of the, the Baskervilles <laughs> is that yeah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got really tired of writing about Sherlock Holmes to the point where he was yeah. like, ah, oh, this guy. So he actually killed him off. He killed him off in one of the short stories. And there was a huge public outcry saying, you can't kill off Sherlock Holmes. Like, he's immortal. He's the best. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm tired of writing him. But he was actually, you know, I guess, you know, he had to eat. So he was paid enough money to bring him back. And so Hound of the Baskervilles is the first story that was published after he killed him off. And it's, there was like a long break, like I think a three-year break or something between uh, mm-hmm. The final problem, which was the story where he dies, dies in quotations, I'll just, and uh, and he brings it back. And so what's kind of cool with The Hound of the Baskervilles is that was, it was almost his way of testing the waters to kind of see if there really was an appetite for Sherlock Holmes again, because the events of Hound of the Baskervilles takes place before Sherlock Holmes dies. So, so it's actually like almost like a se- look at the secret file that we found of a of an unreported case. And again, like Dennis was saying, it was serialized in the Strand magazine. And of course, people went nuts for it because, you know, it was like a new Sherlock Holmes story. <laughs> and, and so it, it, he, he sort of wrote, I think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle intentionally went to write the most Sherlockian Sherlock Holmes story he could write, which is why The Hound of the Baskervilles is often considered like that's the pinnacle because it's, he oh. kind of puts all of the tropes in there. He just is like, I'm just going to oh, just good. load it all in there. And after that, then there was a story called The Adventure of the Empty House, which was the one where he actually reveals that, no, Sherlock Holmes did not die in the final problem. He faked his death and, oh. is, and then returns. And then it goes on for another, like, whatever, 40 short stories and another novel. So anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have read before. Sorry, Erica, your question was, had I read before? <laughs> I have. <laughs> oh, amazing. Good. Okay. That's a good succinct answer. Thank you for <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like to keep things short and sweet on here. <laughs> Well, I I think it was really interesting that he tried to stop writing him and then people wouldn't let him. And actually in the foreword to the edition that I had floating around my house um, that I'd never read, it was actually an eight-year gap between oh, when he okay. tried to kill him off and in the final problem and when he and he when he wrote Hound of the Baskervilles. Wow, but that's even longer than I hadn't I wasn't aware that he had set Hound of the Baskervilles before final problem. So mm, I just kind mm-hmm. of assumed that he'd addressed bringing him back to life already. All right, um, right, yeah. Or his having faked his death already. So like how would we know that how did he survive like or because he's because because he's living Oh, yeah. I mean, if, it was just, if there was just a corpse, <laughs> okay. you know, sitting in the dress in, in, in the sitting room, of course. Uh, I mean, it's it's not. It's, it's not like, part oh my god, who, who's on the matter. floor? That's Sherlock Holmes. He died in the yeah. final problem. Oh man, I came to see Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, he died. And he's alive. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just looking, looking <laughs> it's at not this part. Out. To I, us why now. Am I? No, like, you're right. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it, there's no way in the book. If you just read the book on its own, you would have no idea of the backstory or whatever. Where you just it's a standalone. So that was a yeah. good one then for me to read for the first time. 
for a, for Sherlock. I think so. Yeah. Like, it's not my favorite so. uh, of all of them. But, really? but no, but I What's mean. What's your favorite? Uh, I'm partial to The Sign of Four, mm-hmm. which is another one of okay. the novels. The Sign of Four. Yeah, it's it's pretty. Maybe I'll read that one next. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> I'm just thinking back okay. up to it fondly. Now. All right. There it is. Yeah. But I mean. You look so dreamy. You <laughs> 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 a smile and a faraway look. <laughs> well, Gazing I have to tell you one quick little thing. When I was a kid, one of the Christmas presents I got later was this thing called The Sign of Four Dossier. And it was the coolest thing because what it was is it was actually like a like a paper dossier file folder that you would open up and inside uh, was the story of the sign of four but it actually was told through actual physical items so for example there was like a poison dart so there was a poison Ooh. dart and a little thing sitting there. You could see it and feel it. And there was like a, a little pearl. And there was a pearl. Like all the evidence was there. And make it so real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I would have great. loved that. That's awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I wish I still had that. <laughs> yeah. I really like the book. And I think the other thing that came up briefly when we were talking about it before was the problematic parts of the book. Right. Yes. Um, and I feel like we should mention that maybe before we get into the other, just the other questions that we post on social media, because I was chuckling and I was reading along and then, and then and I was like, oh, these guys are so over the top and campy. And then I went, wait a minute, mm. you know, like all this stuff about the different races and, oh, yeah. and, and the kind of hierarchies of civilization. I'm like, how much of this should I actually be laughing at? And how much of this was like, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So I looked it up a little bit and it's like the stuff on phrenology and like the bumps on your head and stuff had gone out of scientific vogue by the time he was writing. It was kind of more things that people were talking about kind of like every day rather than any kind of serious pursuit of science. So I was kind of relieved about that to a certain point. But I mean, you know, being written at the end of the 1800s beginning and this, this one was written in 1901 or 1902. I mean, you know, problematic times for a lot of a lot of things but i could be so much worse considering the time and some of the other things that were being written at the time so i think that keeping all that in mind it ages really well it was my first sherlock holmes although i've seen a bunch of the adaptations and stuff because i like the character idea i did really like it and so that's why i was trying to figure out what to read next for sherlock holmes and uh, we'll check out rule of four sign of four sign of four don't look up rule of four well, and wasn't it Stapleton that was talking about the bumps on the head and stuff like that? The phrenology, the skulls? Uh, Dr. Mortimer, I think. Oh, right, right, right. Was the main proponent, yeah. Right, right, Stapleton right. was the butterfly guy. Oh, yes, yes, of course, of course. I think yeah, I was... and then he's all like, can I have your skull? Or like, he's right. like right. Can, I, right. can I measure your skull yeah. until, the, until you're done with it? And then like, what? Right. I think I was trying to make the connection between the bad guy, Stapleton, and this right. science. Oh, right. Science. Bad people. Yes. Bad ideas. Yes. No, I well, think yeah. the moral of the story is that people who really like butterflies are evil people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're secretly evil who are trying to pass off their wives as their sisters. And, and of the you four of us, which one? Spoiler. 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 I was going to say, in which uh, of the four of us have seen a butterfly the most recently, uh, Kirsten? <laughs> I saw a butterfly today. Oh. Yeah, all over. And then I, I saw know. a chickadee trying to catch it. I haven't seen one yet, it, so, so I guess that means I'm okay. Oh, I see your point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did really strike me, yeah, that the women seemed easily duped and mm. convinced to do things yeah. because of a man uh, throughout the book. I definitely wrote that in my notes that, uh, yeah, they just, yeah, seemed to just do the evil things because this man had convinced them. So, um, you know, that that seemed bit annoying to me it got annoying um after right. a while yeah. so um and problematic for sure yeah if you can laugh at these silly characters and their and their ways which i can and i did and i was like and he obviously wrote it with humor yeah in mind especially because i think like you could you can read into it him's like you want sherlock i'll give you sherlock he'll be as sherlockian as he possibly yeah. can and dr watson will be super watsony and yeah. now you'll just leave me alone yeah everything was so, ramped up yeah yeah. yeah, so it's almost like a parody of itself, which is kind of neat. Yeah, one thing I enjoyed, too, was when uh, Dr. Mortimer first came and he was asking, when he met Sherlock Holmes, he was kind of awestruck at meeting him and saying, oh, you're the second most uh, intelligent man <laughs> in Europe or whatever, and Sherlock Holmes got all kind of put out. And so, well, who's the most intelligent? They started talking about this guy, Bert- Bertillon, I think, and I looked him up, and he actually was a real person. He was a, a French uh, police officer and detective, and he developed a lot of the sort of biometrics that were 
kind of came out of the phrenology stuff, the pseudoscience, but some of it has stuck around. Like, so for example, you know, uh, well, what he was talking about, Bertiani, a system of like measuring how long someone's nose was or the space between their eyes and stuff. And he was the first one to um, use mug shots. And he uh, was one of the first to use fingerprints to identify people. So mug shots and fingerprints survived to this day, but some of the other things, you know, maybe not so much. The the moral judgments of what the length of your nose means is maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe it's just safely left behind. Yeah, but. for sure. Another century. I'll say. Well, that's really cool. I mean, I I think things like that arising out of out of silly things is really interesting. You know, all the things that have been discovered while somebody was trying to discover something else. You know, like microwaves and stuff like that. Um, penicillin, the famous one. But um, it's also neat to think of how like facial measurements and the way faces are put together are being used now in technology. And I don't know if that was something you mentioned a while, Trevor, well, a while ago. I think Dennis, yeah, way. Dennis mentioned like how Dennis? some of the face, re- facial recognition software uses some of those ideas about the space. Was that right, Dennis? Something about the space between your eyes? Yeah, they, they try to fixate on things that you cannot change. And no matter what kind of a disguise you put on your face, you can't change the distance between your eyes. So when those cameras are scanning crowds at a stadium trying to find people who have warrants and things like that, that's one of the things that checks the distance between your eyes. Hmm. Ooh. <laughs> what are you doing over there? I'm just trying to, like, change the distance between my eyes, you know, for the next time I'm, like out at some protest or Try something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just scrunch your face down. Yeah, so they can't identify me. <laughs> Get some makeup and try to make your eyes look yeah, yeah. closer do the, together. Do the contouring or whatever, the shading, the, you know, uh, to, to change contouring. my look. Contouring. Yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and change this is how Sherlock my... Holmes prepares Kirsten to protest. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Watch out. That's like one thing protest that you... <laughs> places where they're going to stop you by using facial recognition software. Yeah. Now you're ready. Yeah, speaking yeah, of, exactly. of makeup, and so that was one thing that they didn't really cover in Hound of the Baskervilles, but Sherlock Holmes is sort of a master of disguise as well. And they're often oh, in the stories okay. times where... You know, he'll be deep in disguise or deep undercover. And then, you know, even Watson won't recognize him, you know, until he reveals himself. So there was a little bit in that part where he was in the hut and then Sherlock appeared and was like, Watson, please come out, you know, whatever. And then, you know, it's like, Holmes, uh, yeah. I can't believe it's you. Uh, but yeah, there's, or there's that the, wonderful moment when he was on top of the tour. Yeah. Was just like this tall uh, man. And the moon rising behind him. And the moon behind him. And I'm like, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Moment. Yeah. That's like, that's, that's the, that's the hero pose that uh, Conan Doyle is going yeah. for. Yeah. Okay, well, now that we've talked for a long time without getting into any of the questions we posted, why don't we get into some of the questions <laughs> oh. we posted? One of the ones we put out for social media was Sherlock Holmes has been around since the 1880s. What makes him such a beloved and appealing character after all these years? And I guess we touched on some of this already, but did anybody have thoughts on that? Oh, everyone likes to be the smartest person in the room. and uh, Yeah, well, that's what I was going to put. Everyone loves a know-it-all. <laughs> also, also, I call it the Hermione Granger effect, right? Oh, like, yeah. something about that know-it-all person where you're like, yeah. Yeah. If they pull it off in a lovable way, I guess. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to be that person. It's not always nice to be near that person. (laughs) (laughs) Although, if that person is on your side, then you feel like, okay, maybe things will work out. Maybe, you know, you have this brilliant detective. All those dastardly criminals that are doing all these things, they can't get away because you've got Sherlock Holmes on your side. And that feels good to have a hero. Same way we like superheroes, you know, because they can protect us from things that we're afraid of and we can't stop ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's better to have them on your side than the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a sort of generational thing, you know, handing down the Sherlock Holmes stories from like parents to child and um, just sort of like Harry Potter is, you know, that sort of lasts the ages. Another thing that's interesting to mention is when you talk about a character that's been around for so long and there's certain things that people associate with Sherlock Holmes and some of them aren't actually in the original stories, but they've been adopted over the years. Like, for example, you know, the famous like Sherlock Holmes hat yeah, it's called like the deerstalker. The deerstalker. Well, Sorry, I stepped on your No, point. no, not at all. And, and you know, <laughs> uh, he, like he, he didn't really, I mean, if a deerstalker is mentioned at all, it's almost mentioned in passing as one of the hats that Sherlock Holmes might wear. 
but it was really Sidney Paget who was the original illustrator, drew quite a few pictures of Sherlock Holmes wearing the deerstalker, and then that became associated. And the other thing is that particular pipe that you would associate with Sherlock Holmes with kind of a um, a bendy kind of uh, stem and a large bowl. That was, I mean, Sherlock Holmes uh, smoked all kinds of pipes, uh, and uh, like his favorite one was a cherry. <laughs> Lots of stuff. Yeah, it was a, was a cherrywood yeah. pipe, which is just a very long, thin, narrow uh, pipe, which I love in the Jeremy Brett series. That's the one that he smokes most of the time. Uh, and the only reason that the swoopy kind of big pipe uh, became associated with Sherlock Holmes is one of the early actors who portrayed Sherlock Holmes found that was the only pipe he could hold in his mouth and still deliver his lines. It, it balanced properly. So that look of the swoopy pipe and, and, and one, one more little thing that's interesting that is, you know, there's that <laughs> phrase, elementary, my dear Watson. Sherlock Holmes never says it in any of the 56 short stories or the four novels. He says, my dear Watson, what? lots and elementary a few times, but never elementary, my dear Watson. So again, just want to, you know, get that on the record. So we are, we're all on the same <laughs> page with this. Don't you love the, that guy that has all the little stupid... <laughs> I do. Uh, I have no we idea. Do. We I do. We're no learning so much. I have no idea that you were such an expert on this. Well, you agreed to do it. I don't know if I'm an expert, but I am an enthusiast. I'll you know what it. kind of pipe he smoked the yeah. most? And do you know where he kept his uh, tobacco? <laughs> no. In a Persian slipper. Oh, my That's right. a Persian slipper. Maybe I'll put a picture like a shoe? up. Exactly. Yes, I'll maybe put a picture of it up on our show notes. Oh, sure. Sherlock Holmes. I hope you guys are remembering all the things you say you're going to put in the show notes for waking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah making, notes, making notes. Making notes. <laughs> so, why was Doctor Watson an ideal friend and foil for Sherlock Holmes? Do we have any good thoughts on that? Well, we did have this question up on Instagram. So, uh, Heather MCC five four three two one wrote down that Sherlock's brain doesn't work the way most of us think. I loved the way Cumberbatch played it as autism. And although the word wasn't around when Conan Doyle wrote, it seems faithful to the source material to me. Watson represents the rest of us. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. I I do think that Watson is supposed to speak for the audience sometimes. And sort of tell them what to make of what Sherlock Holmes is doing or what crazy things are happening. Yeah. Yeah. I have to think about that. Yeah, And I guess not having read more of the books, Mm -hmm. I don't have a Mm -hmm. super good idea. And it sounds like Heather... It sounds like Heather MCC, you know, has it. She says it's faithful to the source material, mm, yeah. so she and must have read lots. Most yeah. of the stories are written in Dr. Watson's voice because the literary device they use is that he is writing down Sherlock Holmes' adventures for posterity. So a lot of times they're written, you know, from his perspective. So you're you're getting mm. sort of like the man on the street. If if the man on the street was super close to Sherlock Holmes, so yeah, the idea yeah. of being the audience surrogate <laughs> yeah. or audience's way into this amazing, complicated mind. Yeah, yeah, I like I like that take. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Heather yeah. MCC. Uh, plus, on- he has to be able to. Then we have someone who can be constantly amazed by Holmes, and so you can have the proper perspective on just how intelligent Holmes is without having to figure it out for yourself, because you're about as dumb as Watson. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially now, and that, I think that was one of the parts that I really liked, was like, especially now when everything's like forensic shows and there's DNA and all this crazy stuff, and Sherlock is so amazing because he knows, you know, like the different kinds of shoes and stuff like that. And I'm like... In a way, it's more practical, like it's more, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for. It's more real. It's actually like using your brain and having to know stuff than plugging something into a computer and having it tell you the answer. Um, But it's also really charming and like simpler times, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's sort of relatable, you know, just for, you know, the regular person, right? That um, I can relate to, you know, yeah. shoe prints or different types of, you know, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's cigarettes. More, they're more tangible, I guess. Or like when, yeah. when Sir Henry presented that warning letter that was cut out of the newspaper, and Holmes knew <laughs> the font and knew which newspaper it was from, and the way he kind of <laughs> followed that logical line of reasoning yeah. through to know the exact edition and the page where it was cut out of, uh, I thought was pretty great. Um, and Dennis, yeah, you, actually, like deducing things. The uh, the identification of fonts it's still used these days to catch people during forgeries. I, I, oh. I read an interesting case where a person had uh, there was some sort of a contract dispute, and uh, one of the parties in the lawsuit produced a letter that had been typed up in Microsoft Word and had been printed out, and it was to prove that they had done this like at a certain date, 
And they brought in a font expert who testified that the font in the letter that was printed out was actually Calibri, which is what the current default on Microsoft Word. But at the time the letter was purportedly written, Calibri had not yet been developed because Microsoft <laughs> developed it for uh -huh. their uh, operating system. And it would have been Arial on uh, the default oh. previously. So they got <laughs> cut out by a font. So, yeah. I love it. Nice. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> the devil's in the details. And just going back to Dr. Watson for just a second, you know, it's interesting, Dennis, that you did say, you know, we're all as dumb as uh, Dr. Watson, because there is that common perception that he's kind of a bumbling kind of dumb guy, especially when you see him next to the brilliance of, of Sherlock Holmes. But again, that's one of those things that's sort of um, been added to the character over the years. And the biggest culprit for that was Nigel Bruce, who played Watson in the 30s against uh, Basil Rathbone, where he played home, uh, Watson as kind of like a fool and a bumbling. And then also, I have to do say, I say in The Hunt of the Baskervilles, he does come across as kind of dumb, but I think it's also Conan Doyle's way of ramping everyone up. But he, but in a lot of the stories, Watson is, is sort of intelligent. He's, he's sort of more of a foil for Holmes to bounce ideas off of. And, and there seems to be a mutual respect in many ways, although there, it did seem like Holmes was almost being cruel in some cases where he was, he was kind of letting Watson think he was ahead of something and then pulled the rug out from under him and saying, you know, so that there is that side of it. But just uh, going to our, our Facebook page, one of our listeners, Henry Joseph Feeks, had something to say about uh, Dr. Watson. And I, I kind of agree uh, with some of the things he's saying here. Let me just call it up here. So, yeah, Henry Joseph uh, Feeks, one of our uh, listeners, wrote this about Dr. Watson. Dr. Watson is a smart, educated man. He is wounded in battle and just wants to get back into civilian life. And when he meets Sherlock Holmes, there's a sense of amazement, a sense of adventure that takes Watson places he's never been before. Having incredible adventures with a man who, in time, became his best friend. Not to mention, if he had never met Holmes, he wouldn't have met his wife which I think is really cool. So it sounds like Henry Joseph Peeks is a big uh, Sherlock fan because one of the cool parallels between the original Sherlock Holmes and the adaptations is that the very first book, A Study in Scarlet, Dr. Watson talks about how he was wounded in Afghanistan and then came home to uh, convalesce and was looking for a cheap place to live. And so through a mutual uh, acquaintance, he was introduced to Sherlock Holmes, who was looking also for someone to share uh, uh, rooms with. And so that's that's how they, they kind of say that they met. It's, a, it's almost like an odd couple. Uh, roomies, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch uh, is that they do that as well, that the Watson is wounded in Afghanistan. But of course, it's the modern Afghanistan conflict post 9-11 world oh. because it's a modernized version, but it's still Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. It's kind of cool how they, they respect the originals while at the same time, you know, putting their own spin on it. And it also shows that over 100 years later, we're still fighting in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Keep going back. Got to get out there and protest. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what are some Shall other great literary pairings? Yeah, Chelsea McKee Trenchard said Cormoran Strike and Robin Ellicott from the Galbraith series. Yes. Oh, Have yes. you guys read those? Nope. Oh, no. you should. It's J.K. Rowling. Oh, that's right. Um, writing is Robert Galbraith, and they're very good mm -hmm. mysteries. Highly recommend. Sorry, there's the TV adaptation of that, which they did a good job on as well. Mystery series often have uh, good pairings between, like, a, a lead detective and their assistant, like uh, Hercule Poirot and Hastings from Agatha Christie, or uh, yeah. Nero Wolfe and Archie from the uh, Rex Stout books. I'm trying to think of any of those are the two that come to mind off the top of my head. Um, Henry uh, Feeks, who, who had those thoughtful comments about Dr. Watson, he offers up uh, Captain Augustus McRae and Captain Woodrow F. Call from the Lonesome Dove series. He says it's perhaps his favorite literary pairing. And that's a series by uh, Larry McMurtry, which I've always meant to read. It's sort of been on my to-be-read pile since, like, for the last probably five or six years, and just haven't got around to it. And so now I think maybe that this might be the, the push. Maybe this is the time, you know, <laughs> for me to take on Lonesome Dove. If not now, when? Well, exactly yeah, right. That's right. Exactly right. We'll see. Stay tuned. Yeah, I couldn't think of any other good literary pairings, um, and maybe because it's like it's really it's a very mystery thing, and I've been reading a lot of other stuff. 
Although I just thought of one now too. Uh, Captain Jack Aubrey and Dr. Stephen Maturin from the like Master and Commander and uh, the other yes. books by yeah oh, oh yeah author? by Patrick O'Brien Patrick O'Brien yeah there, there was a movie well, twenty years ago right with uh, Russell Crowe and uh, uh, I'm not sure who it was but yeah yeah that you're right those guys are a great example of their friends and foils and uh, yeah that's a great series Kirk and Spock. Sure. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> sure. But if I've been murdered, I don't want Calvin and Hobbes investigating because things will go all to pieces. Guess not. <laughs> Good note. Okay, why don't we just keep working down the questions? Why are mysteries and detective novels, TV shows and movies, so popular? What is it about um, mysteries, do you think? August 8th it's girl. Nobody um, <laughs> knows. August 8th girl on from Instagram said, because life is a mystery and it is nice to have some mystery, however small and fictional, solved. Also, usually there is some justice meted out. Good are saved, rewarded, and bad are punished can be very emotionally satisfying. Mm-hmm. Right. Unless, unless you read Scandinavian uh, mysteries, and then <laughs> they're all... Uh, bad, uh, bad things happen <laughs> to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things Dark. just happen to animals. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the tradition of noir fiction too, right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. There's no black and white. There's lots of shades of gray. Uh, a lot of hard-boiled detective fiction is like that, where you're just wading into a sea of corruption and trying to maybe bring a small piece of justice, but it's always incomplete, and the methods used to get it are sometimes questionable. Uh, so yeah, like The anti-hero. Yeah. Not like Sherlock Holmes, where it's pretty clear-cut, and the mystery is definitively solved, even if it's incredibly complex, and it's all reduced to elementary, my dear Watson, we've got this figured <laughs> out. <laughs> Although, I mean, yes, but also in the Hounds of the Baskervilles, it's not really all cleared up. For example, the dog that glows, <laughs> and the only explanation for that was radium or whatever. Phosphorus. Like, yeah. Where did they, yeah, phosphorus. And that explains <laughs> that where they got the phosphorus, how it was applied to the dog. Did they have to, like, cover the dog all the time or did they feed it? I, I had a lot of questions about that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what's uh, the deal uh, with the phosphorus? Actually, that brings up a point, too, about Sherlock Holmes stuff in general. Like, uh, he's often portrayed as, you know, incredibly logical and uh, very insightful and things like that. But a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories have a lot of questionable elements to them like in this one stapleton is identified as an heir because he resembles a 400 year old picture Um, (laughs) exactly and that that's that's the evidence and it's enough there are other mysteries where like the the speckled band uh mystery relies on a snake being able to do something snakes can't do um (laughs) you know so uh, so there's this a lot of it yeah suspension of disbelief <laughs> well, and speaking, but that's of, also what makes it fun, right? Like it's fiction. Yeah, yeah. You know, just sort of, another part of the end of the Hound of the Baskervilles, which is kind of unsatisfying, is when the, they're trying to figure out. Well, if Stapleton had succeeded, how would he like claim his inheritance? Like, yeah, like every, everyone right. knew who he was, and then they had all these kind of really like not. Uh, solid theories. Well, maybe he'd wear a disguise to pick it up, or maybe he would move back to South America and claim it from afar. And then I think Sherlock Holmes said something like, well, you can't expect me to answer everything. And he's kind of all put out. And I, and I imagine almost, it's almost like the uh, like the editor of the Strand magazine uh, said to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, like, well, you have to explain this. And he's all put out. It's like, I don't have to explain it at all. And, then he, and he writes it in there as if, almost like as a, as a response to a note from an editor saying, you know, you want Sherlock Holmes? Here he is. You want everything explained? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, this is what you get. I'd like to see. An, I'd like to see an alternate fiction one where it turned out that Stapleton had nothing to do with this, and he was framed, and uh, he, oh. he was a jerk, maybe, but he didn't have Dennis, anything to do with the hound. That is a perfect lead-in to my book recommendation. So oh. when we when we do oh. tell us about another book that we'll recommend, just keep that thought. Okay. Well, I mean, we could. I did have. I did have one more question. It's a bonus question that I thought up, um, and perhaps the most important question of all. 
Ooh. What actor did the best Holmes adaptation to screen? Ooh. And there is a correct answer. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, no. This is like this is like the quiz night we did when we did the live episode. <laughs> Except now you're the quiz master. I am. I, I so. will say that I watched several different film adaptations of The Hound of the Baskervilles this past week or two, just because I had the same question. If you look it up online, you know that there are three actors that are most commonly listed as the uh, best. And you could probably all uh, cite them directly, but... Um, uh, not really. No. <laughs> if I had to guess, I would say Basil Rathbone, Jeremy Brett, and Bandit Cumberbatch. Exactly. Yeah! Um, nice so, job! Basil Rathbone had been in a number of uh, movies uh, that had been made for Sherlock Holmes, uh, which started with uh, Hound of the Baskervilles in 1939. And then they did a series. The first couple were made by 20th Century Fox, and then the rights fell to a different company. And they moved Holmes to like World War II, where he was fighting the Nazis and things like that. But the original one was just straightforward period piece, uh, all shot on a soundstage. Uh, Jeremy Brett was in the 1980s to 90s Granada TV version of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And of course, we all know Benedict Cumberbatch on uh, Sherlock. So I watched the individual ones, and uh, the Basil Rathbone one is straightforward, and it cuts out a bunch of stuff. Like, uh, there's no mention of Stapleton's sister actually being his wife, and there's no romantic thing with Sir Charles. And uh, a few other things get cut out, and Watson is really played for an idiot. Like, he's a total moron in that one. Yeah. Nigel Bruce. The Jer- yeah. <laughs> the Jeremy Brett one is probably as close as you can get to sticking to the source material. They made a couple of little changes, but very, very close. And watching the performance of Watson is really great. It's one of those things I've often found when I read a work. There's different voices you can read it in and different subtleties you can put into it. Even though they're reciting mostly the same lines, Watson comes across as a lot more intelligent and wise and uh, clever in this one, despite using almost all the same lines. Benedict Cumberbatch's version, I have to say, I can't really count him as uh, in the running for Best Holmes because there's enough changes in it that it really feels like a total reinvention of a character rather than Hmm. something that's drawn from the source material directly, the way that the others are. The Hound of the Baskerville episodes of Sherlock is... uh, very loosely inspired by the original story. But they did capture some of the lines anyways and use them, so that was kind of cool. But- so, just speaking of that, of movie adaptations, in a couple of weeks we plan to be back with a special episode where we're going to be debating some of the different Hound of the Baskerville movie adaptations. So if you'd like to join in, please track some down. Uh, tell us, what do you think was the truest one to the source material? Which had the best mustaches? Tell us what you think, and then tune in for what we think. So, but I, I, I still need to hear the answer that I'm looking for, the correct answer to which actor is the best Holmes? Jeremy Brett. No. Jeremy Brett. No. Kirsten, do you I have a vote? Know. Well, I haven't really seen very many. I've just seen one, I guess, like oh, Benedict on. Cumberbatch. That is the correct answer. The correct answer <gasps> is Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, <laughs> Although I have to, I have to put another nomination in for Michael Caine. Yeah, because in nineteen eighty-eight they put out "Without a Clue" with Michael Caine as Holmes and Ben Kingsley as Watson, and it's notable for the oh. fact that this is a pastiche wherein Watson is the genius who, in order to protect his reputation when he was applying for a prestigious position. He attributed his crime solving to a fictitious Sherlock Holmes, and then when people wanted to meet him, he hired an actor to play him. Unfortunately, the actor was a womanizer and a drunkard and all-around lout, but then things happen and hilarity ensues. It's a, it's mm-hmm. an awesome watch if you can get it. There you go. Yeah. Sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, do we have time um, for my just quick take on uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock? Yeah, just, yeah, just very quick. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so Go my ahead. take is that I believe that the writers of Sherlock, Stephen Moffat and uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the other guy, but the guy who plays um, Mycroft in the show, they, they're huge Sherlock Holmes fans. And so I forgive a lot if you can show that you can tie stuff back and respect the, the originals, even if you vary from it. So I found uh, the first two seasons in particular of Sherlock really strong and then sort of diminishing returns after that. And I think the, 
the tipping point for me was the episode that was called Reichenbach Fall, which was their take on the final problem when Sherlock Holmes dies. And it ends with Sherlock Holmes falling or jumping off of a building and dying or supposedly dying. And then it ends. And the annoying thing with Sherlock is that the seasons are very short, but the episodes are long. Like the episodes are about 90 minutes long. So about the length of a feature film, but there's usually only three episodes per season. And then you have to go when it was coming out like a year before you would find out uh, what happened. So in the, in the season break between the seasons where Sherlock Holmes dies and comes back, the internet exploded with uh, fan theories about, well, how did he pull it off? And, and how did Sherlock do it? How did he, how could Watson mm-hmm. see him fall off the building? And then he lived. And, and there were like YouTube videos and people would freeze frame and they had all these conspiracy theories. And it was amazing. I was, I was on top of it all. I just could not get enough of the conspiracy theories. <laughs> and, then, and then I just, I could not wait for the first episode to, uh, where Sherlock comes back. And, and they kind of dodged it. They kind of wanted it every which way. And, uh, and, and it was unsatisfying. And, and, but then I, I read an interview later with the writers and they said that they too were reading all the fan theories and they were like, Oh my God, these are really good. Like, like there's no way we can outdo these theories. And so they do a kind of a, you know, well, it could have happened like this, or maybe it happened like that. And, and it's a clever way of doing it because then Sherlock never really does say how he pulls off the, the trick. Uh, and, but it addresses all the different sort of, fan theories, or at least the most popular ones. So in that way, it was almost like fan fiction of a show in a real show. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm okay with Bad Dick. I'm bad. But, you know, Jeremy <laughs> Brett, he's my man. He's my man, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a Sherlockian show rather than an adaptation. Maybe now it's time for our most awkwardly worded segment, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Would anybody like to go first? Sure, I can go first. Um, this is actually a book recommendation of a book I plan to read. I follow a blog called Brain Pickings, which just talks a lot about um, books that are that have come out, but also literary um, figures. And it's always super interesting. And I read this post on uh, lessons in mindfulness and creativity from the great detective. And I'm always very interested in mindfulness right now. So this particular post was talking about a book from 2013 called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes by Maria Kornikova. And it looks at turning Holmes's methodology into actionable insights that we can use in our in our lives. So uh, it's to have a mindful approach um, to life and to thought. So I've put this on hold. Um, there's an ebook on Overdrive, so I've I've put it on hold and I plan to read it. So you might be interested in in reading it as well. That's my book recommendation, Mastermind: How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. By Maria Kornikova. Cool. Yeah, you'll have to let you'll have to let us know what how that one is. It sounds super mm-hmm. good. For sure. Anybody? Um, I I could I could go if that's yeah you want it yeah yeah sure. So just following up uh, on what Dance was saying earlier about would it be funny if it turned out that Stapleton was not. Uh, the killer after all. Well, the book I am, uh, I can't say that I liked this book, but I'm going to classify this as further <laughs> reading. Uh, and the book is called Sherlock Holmes was wrong. Reopening the case of the Hound of the Baskervilles by Pierre <laughs> Bayard. And, and, and it P- Pierre How Bayard, dare he? uh, <laughs> he's a, um, uh, a French literary professor and also a psychoanalyst and author. So, and, and what he's done is he's taken the story and he has a different, uh, let's say, an alternative theory as to what happened. And what he's saying is that Sherlock Holmes got it wrong. Stapleton was not the murderer. It was his wife, Burl, that was. Oh. And she mm-hmm. set up uh, Stapleton and the dog was just um, you know, a harmless uh, thing. And then, in fact, she got away with it all. And then he it goes through the whole story and, and pointing out here and there. And he was saying she was so clever that not only did she outsmart Sherlock Holmes, she outsmarted Sir Arthur Conan Doyle because uh, mm. even he didn't know uh, the real end of the story. So, um, so it's you know anyone that says Sherlock Holmes was wrong. Uh, when that book came out a few years ago, I was like, well, we'll see about this. So I ordered it uh, and, and read it. And I I don't want to say anything negative, but I will read this tiny clip from a, a review that said the book is original, but it's annoying and it's uncreative, whole poking nature. 
And, uh, and it turns out, uh, Pierre Bayard has kind of made a cottage industry of taking, uh, famous, uh, pieces of literature and, and saying that the authors are wrong. He's done it as well with Agatha Christie. <laughs> and he had a book called Who he Killed like uh, Roger Ackroyd? Franklin. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, where he says, no, 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 the person that Agatha Christie said killed isn't. And then he even went so far as to, uh, take on Shakespeare. Uh, with Hamlet, and he said Claudius didn't really kill Hamlet's father, and he has all the evidence for that. So <laughs> wow. I think, I mean, it is written kind of tongue in cheek, and there's humor to it. So there it is. If you if you were unsatisfied with the ending of the Hound of the Baskervilles, as we all seem to be a little bit, uh, perhaps um, reading Sherlock Holmes was wrong. We'll give you something else to think about as well as what may have really happened on the Grimpenmire. Ooh, that sounds like the kind sounds of guy good. who would sue everybody whenever he wanted. <laughs> like my favorite character in the book, Franklin totally, or whatever his totally. name was. Yeah, yeah. kind of like a guy that's like you know, yeah, he's not he's not sort of clever enough to write his own mysteries, but he's just gonna like poke fun or like tear other people's stuff down yeah, yeah. now we're gonna get hate yep. mail from but no, <laughs> oh, no all i can say is you know yeah it was it was entertaining and you know god bless him for writing it <laughs> yes maybe i'll slide mm-hmm. in here dennis if it's okay because um it ties a little bit nicely to my book that you'd also like which was and then there were none by agatha christie It's a curious assortment of strangers are summoned as weekend guests to a private little island off the coast of Devon. So the same sort of country or part of the country as Hound of the Baskervilles. It also has that secluded um, nature feeling away from help, away from, you know, civilization, if, if you would. Their host, an eccentric millionaire unknown to all of them, is nowhere to be found. And then one by one, they start turning up dead. And it's very spooky. Um, so if you liked this book, you might also like, and then there were none by Agatha Christie. Sounds nice. Excellent choice. Thank you. I'm going to break with tradition a little bit and not recommend a single book so much as recommend series. So, and I'm going to recommend two, but I have to apologize in advance because the ones I'm recommending are not as available as I would like to suggest. Anyway, uh, the first one is The Nero Wolf Mysteries by Rex Stout, uh, which was later continued by Robert Goldsboro. Uh, We have a few of the books, but we don't have anything on Overdrive. Uh, Nero Wolf is a brilliant eccentric detective in New York who solves mysteries with his confidential assistant, Archie Goodwin. Like Holmes, Wolf can solve the most challenging cases, and he has lots of quirks that make him a social oddball. Unlike Holmes, Wolf is not, generally speaking, a man of action. He almost never leaves his home for any reason. Instead, <laughs> he prefers to read books, tend to his orchids, and eat gourmet meals prepared by his personal chef. His assistant, Archie, who is the narrator, much like Dr. Watson, does all of the footwork and then reports back to Wolf, who then solves the crimes. Rex Stout published 33 novels and 41 novellas between 1934 and 1975. I've read about a dozen. There have been numerous adaptations, and my favorite was the series broadcast by A&E between 2000 and 2002, which starred Maury Chaikin as Wolf and Timothy Hutton as Archie. It was my introduction to the characters, uh, which prompted me to seek out the books, and it was also my introduction to Maury Chaikin, who played the role brilliantly and was a lot of fun to watch. Unfortunately, we only have one DVD in our collection. The other series I'd like to recommend is Ellery Queen. Um, We have several books in our collection, and a few of them are on Overdrive. So Ellery Queen, the author, is actually two authors, Frederick Denae and Manfred Bennington Lee, and they co-wrote the mystery series featuring the detective who is also named Ellery Queen. The character Ellery is a mystery author in New York who helps his police inspector father solve baffling mysteries. The writing style and a lot of elements of the character evolved over the years so that the early books really feel different than the later books. But they're all pretty cool. And one of my favorite things about it is that most of the books, not all of them, feature a challenge to the reader towards the end of the book. So you reach a page and it tells you at that point, you have all the clues necessary to solve the mystery. Do you know who did it? Hmm. And then it proceeds. Uh, They believed a lot in playing fair with the reader. Uh, So I always found that entertaining. There were a lot of TV adaptations of the Ellery Queen series, too, and in the 90s, uh, A&E ran uh, some reruns of a 1970s series where they included the challenge to the reader just before the end of the episode, where Ellery Queen would actually turn to the camera and say, well, do you know who did it? And he'd lay out a few of the clues, and then they'd go and they'd wow. wrap up the show. That's so, awesome. 
Yeah. Cool. So Nero Wolf and Ellery Quinn. Nice. Okay, so now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. It's a part of each show where our hosts tell us about a word that's been tickling their tongues. Who wants to go first? I can go first. That's okay. That would be great. So speaking of conspiracy theory, because I think uh, <laughs> Trevor did, um, my nerd word is bird truthers. So uh, I think I was telling you guys, my son Isaac, he and some friends get together on Friday nights and drink beer and uh, have PowerPoint parties where they do like six minute PowerPoints when they teach each other new things like how to twerk and why um, Eurovision is going to save the world. So this past week, um, Isaac did a PowerPoint about birds aren't real. That was the title of his, of his PowerPoint. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so bird truthers are this group that believe in the theory that the U.S. government started killing all of the birds in the 1950s, while at the same time replacing them with drones that looked like birds. So they have a website called Birds Aren't Real. They've done many interviews where they are quite offended by the notion that this is satire and they staunchly defend the movement's legitimacy. The leader says the thought that this could be used uh, to make a satire of a dark, intense time in American culture, I find those things to be baloney. So bird truthers, I will leave it to you to decide for yourselves. Are you on the side of the bird truthers or not? Bird truthers. That's my nerd word. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Wow. We we don't know what they're up to, those birds. Like ultimately, (laughs) we just don't know. That's that a tough one to follow, but I, I feel no, no, no. like... Actually, uh, oh. I, I, I want to tie into this one because it ties into my word very well. Oh, right, you, oh go, you go, yes. My word is epistemology. Epistemology is the study of the nature of knowledge, justification, and the rationality of belief. So from Wikipedia, much debate in epistemology centers on questions of the philosophical analysis of the nature of knowledge, how it relates to concepts such as truth, belief, justification the problems of skepticism, the sources and scope of knowledge and justified belief, and the criteria for knowledge and justification. So it asks questions like, what makes a justified belief justified? What does it mean to say you know something? And how do we know what we know? When I was in university, I took business courses and majored in accounting, but I took philosophy courses on the side. And one of those classes was epistemology. Epistemological questions are deep dive philosophy that can make you wonder if there's any way to know anything, and if there isn't, what's the point of anything anyway? They can also make you wonder if there's any point in studying philosophy, since it's really easy to get lost in these questions and not act on anything. Yeah. Some epistemological problems that we covered in class, like how the brain receives information from the senses and how the senses interact with the external world, have long since been more clearly answered by scientific disciplines like neurology and biology. And some of those questions might be better answered by psychology than philosophy. But questions about how we justify our beliefs and how we make sure that they're accurate and useful are still important questions that we grapple with all the time. We constantly face challenges to our beliefs in our daily interactions with people, in the news, in the media we consume, and when we hear about bird truthers. (laughs) Um, The word popped up for me a lot because Sherlock Holmes has what we might call a pragmatic view of epistemology in that truth is what is practically applicable to the world. Like in some of the stories, or at least one of the stories, Dr. Watson is surprised to know that Holmes doesn't know that the earth revolves around the sun. And Holmes considers it irrelevant because it's not applicable to his world, his daily life. And so it's not important. But yeah, epistemology. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Very nice. Before I present my uh, nerd word, I I feel like I have a professional responsibility to uh, remind people that Winnipeg Public Library has an info guide on media (laughs) literacy and spotting fake news. Uh, then we'll, I'll make sure that there's a link to it right below Kirsten's uh, nerd word. Uh, <laughs> yes. Moving right along. Uh, my nerd word uh, this month was inspired by my daughter, Audrey, again, because I was having a hard time coming Aww. up with one. So without further ado, my nerd word is popcorn. 
Mm. Now, I'm not sure who you. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more. It's a bit of a deep dive. Popcorn is actually one of six main types of corn. Can you name the other five? No. Corn on the cob. Well, yes, that, that was probably the most popular. It's called sweet corn. But there's also flower corn, which they turn into flour. Pod corn, flint corn, and dent corn. So named because there's dents in it. And flint because it's hard, a hard shell. And those three are mostly used for animal food. Um, but the term popcorn is a sixth distinct type of corn. Uh, the term popping corn first appeared in 1848 in Bartlett's Dictionary of Americanisms. And uh, careful listeners to the podcast will be interested in this next fact, that in 1893, a Chicago inventor, Charles Creters, introduced a steam-powered corn popper at the Chicago World's Fair. Hey. Uh, and so, you know, uh, for if people want to go back and listen to our episode about Devil in the White City, they might hear about another side of the Chicago World's Fair as well. Uh, I'm just trying to imagine what this this steam-powered uh, popcorn maker must have looked like, like totally steampunky, you know, and apparently some of them had like an automaton on top called the Toasty Roasty Man that would move <laughs> and, and, and to, to, to attract people to it. So uh, another fun fact, in, in America in the 1800s, people consumed popcorn as a breakfast cereal with milk and sugar. Um, but how did popcorn become America's snack? I'll tell you, during the Great Depression, popcorn was inexpensive <laughs> compared to other snacks. And so farmers turned to growing popcorn as a cash crop. Uh, and one farmer in particular, you might recognize their name, Redenbacher. The Redenbacher oh. family, who then launched their own company of popcorn in 1970, they were one of the first early adopters of popcorn as a cash crop. During World War II, or as my uncle Doug used to refer to it, is WW2, which I always thought was strange because it took you longer to say WW2 than World War II. But in any case, during WW2, uh, sugar rations meant that uh, Americans didn't have sugar to make candy. So uh, Americans ate three times as much popcorn during the war than afterwards. And then how did uh, popcorn and movie theaters come about? Well, I'll tell you, in 1938, the first movie theater installed a popcorn maker uh, when they found out they could make way more money off of selling popcorn than they could off of movie tickets. And that tradition, of course, uh, continues to this day where you can pay $10 for a movie ticket and about $40 for a bag of popcorn. Now, some of you may be thinking, what about microwavable popcorn? Well, I'll tell you this. In, in 1981, <laughs> General Mills got the first patent. 1981. Were there even microwaves back then? Nobody knows. Yes. But but they were they were they, <laughs> nobody knows. They were futurists. They knew There's that no sometimes. Way to know for sure. <laughs> but listen to this. It was not all fun and games with the early microwave popcorn. Apparently early um, mixtures had an artificial flavoring in it called diasteril, which is harmless was harmless to consumers, but it caused a respiratory illness in microwave popcorn factory workers called popcorn lung. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. It, I, I'm sorry to end on a sad note. I should. I should have pointed that out. Um, but that, the good news is, is all the major popcorn makers now they no longer use that um, flavoring, and it's quite safe to factory workers and you and I in our homes. Oof. Um, yeah, and so there it is, popcorn. Uh, we don't have a popcorn maker ourselves at home anymore. That's another whole story. So I buy popcorn in bags, pre-popped, and I just eat it like that. Anyway, I don't mind it. But there's something about freshly popped popcorn. So if any of you guys have any popcorn tips, uh, I'm, I'm, pan, I'm, happy to, I'm, I'm happy to hear them. We'll hook a you pot up. with oil. Yeah. yeah. Delicious. Popcorn. That sounds dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So my nerd word was a nerd phrase, and I feel like it's very fitting after Trevor's, perhaps, because the phrase is, take your time. (laughs) I've been thinking about the phrase, take your time, um, lately, because I really like the idea of the emphasis on the your, on it being your time. But Cambridge Dictionary says the phrase is meant to mean that you can spend as much time as you need in doing something or that you should slow down. I like the idea of taking ownership of your time and taking your time. Like we're all taking back our time from all the things we were doing before. We don't have the distraction of the places we could be going or should be going. And we're having to see what we can do with what we have in the here and now. We've gained time that we would have spent on commutes that we can decide what to do with. So it's, yeah, take your Mm -hmm. time right now 
Mm. while we're all going through this different time. Love it. Nice. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very timely. Yeah. <laughs> timely. Speaking of time, unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. And we want to extend thanks to everyone who got in touch with us through email or social media. And for you, dear listeners, you are why we do this. As promised, our next book was chosen by a poll on our Facebook group, and they chose Little Women, another classic with lots of movie adaptations. Again, next time you'll hear us, it will be a special episode about Sherlock Holmes adaptations. And your special questions will be, which was the truest to the source material and which had the best mustaches? Um, We'll we'll probably put out some more questions, but those are to start you off. Tell us what you think and then tune in for what we think. Get in on the conversation by finding us on Facebook or emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. Have a book you'd love to hear us discuss? Let us know. You can tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find... Time Time to read. read. pace (laughs) we're trying to say it at the same time we're trying to sync it up should we do it again (laughs) should we do one more is that good no i think it's good it is what it is people understand we're doing we're working with what we have to work with or emailing us at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca or emailing us at wpl at get on get in on the conversation by finding us on facebook or emailing us at wpl Slash podcast. Nope. <laughs> Find out if your comments made it on air by subscribing to Times to Read. Find out if your comments made it on air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Google. You- <laughs> Find out if your comments. <laughs> hey, I think we just got I've our never done that before. Sorry. Mm. You're doing great, Erica. Thank you. <laughs>